You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 27th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Live from London, this is Midori House. I'm Daniel Bage. Coming up on today's show. I am here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. Christine Blasey Ford appears before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We'll have full analysis of a dramatic and extraordinary day in Washington. Also ahead, another day at the United Nations General Assembly. But all anyone can talk about was yesterday's rambling press conference from U.S. President Donald Trump. You were talking about your administration's accomplishments at the United Nations, and a lot of the leaders laughed. Well, that's laughing. fake news. And what was that experience yeah, like? It's fake news. And it was covered that way. Okay. They weren't laughing at me. They were laughing with me. We had fun. I'll be joined by my guests, Daniela Pellet and Alessio Patellano, to discuss, plus... How confusing is Brexit for the rest of the world? And Canada's military is finally saying yes to beards. Well, neat, well-groomed ones, that is. Service with style. That's ahead on Midori House, starting now. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pallad, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Alessio Patellano, Lecturer in War Studies at King's College London. Welcome both to the program and welcome both back to studio. First to the United States, where the Senate Judiciary Committee has been hearing testimony from Christine Blasey Ford, who accuses Judge Brett Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct. Here's some of what she had to say just a short time ago. I am here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. I attended the Holton Arms School in Bethesda, Maryland from 1978 to 1984. During my time at the school, girls at Holton Arms frequently met and became friendly with boys from all boys schools in the area, including the Landon School, Georgetown Prep, Gonzaga High School as well as our country clubs and other places where kids and families socialized. This is how I met Brett Kavanaugh, the boy who sexually assaulted me. This has been billed by some as a day of reckoning. No doubt it, was, it is a historic moment, even though we've been in a similar place in past with Anita Hill. Is that not right? Does it feel like a, a historic day, Danielle? It feels like a very painful day. Yeah. I confess I've been following this on Twitter and written you know, the, the rolling news account. I found it really too... Um, too sensitive and too painful to watch it. Even mm. listening to her right now makes gives me goosebumps. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a, it's it's a very traumatic day for yeah. many people following it. With uh, the other side is that perhaps this is a signal of change, and perhaps the the reckoning will come in reaction to this. But mm. we've seen a very very ugly side. Uh, of society, not just in the protesters and the abuse that, that well, frankly, everyone involved in this has got, but also it's exposed so many fault lines. The fact that um, she's giving this testimony in front of basically white, middle-aged men, mm. which is a pretty solid wall of them. And 
I, I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a bit um, of a cliche to call this triggering, but I think it has brought up so many issues with so many mostly women, but also men who are watching this and following this. And the reaction to it, the reaction to this, I mean, the reaction of Donald Trump to it has already been fairly horrific. But then the wider societal uh, or legal reaction to this, I think, would be very telling. You mentioned the, the trauma, and of course, she's been sort of made to relive this trauma, and it can be traumatic for people who have gone through similar things as well, I imagine. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, said, this is not a trial of Dr. Fort, however, but a job interview for Judge Kavanaugh. But uh, Alessio, how uh, can this not be seen as a trial right now? She's uh, being grilled. Uh, it's, it's quite serious. It is very serious. But at the same time, I think... Um Daniel is absolutely right. Um, I think today what is happening is that this administration um, is bringing out, um, if you want, it's 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 polarizing um, the extremes of what lied underneath society for the last twenty, thirty years, whereby we kind of all knew things, uh, certain things were happening, and sometimes they would come out, but most of the time they would not. Today we're starting to see the consequences of many, many years of unspoken uh, 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 acts that should have never been acceptable, mm. but were considered to an extent acceptable so long so you didn't talk about it. And now this is changing. Um, so it feels like a trial, but in a way I, I, I must believe that that there is a positive sense of hope that comes out of this, as this is the beginning of something much more important um, that is, oddly enough, the extreme that figures like Donald Trump embody um, with their physical persona are bringing to light all that has been hidden underneath the hypocrisy of society for the better part of the last three decades. Mm. And hopefully this is the beginning of something different, something of a true engagement and a way to move forward in that sense. We'll see. We, we had such a big impact uh, back in, after Anita Hill spoke all those years ago with, with uh, the number of women in office uh, going up incredibly, which, which was uh, a very positive thing perhaps at the time. But is it sort of sad, Daniela, that all these years later we, we seem to be in a, a similar place with, you know, the, the men in this occasion, some of them are the same men from all those years ago in the room. Mm. This time they've just got a, a prosecutor to ask their questions for them, but it's essentially the same thing. This has to be a process. I mean, I would say that this goes back much longer than, than three decades. We're mm. talking millennia of, uh, of social mores and, and the realisation of, I mean, the the realization of social change also involves uh, the girls and women involved. I'm hoping that girls at high school will follow this and realize that actually this behavior is not acceptable. Mm. When I was a teenage girl, um, this kind of behavior to a greater or lesser extent was just part and parcel of being a teenage girl at a party. And you would, it's amazing to me now when I look back and I think about all the measures that I would take or consider to keep myself safe. And that just, that was just what you did. Mm. Uh, so I think that change takes a long time coming. It's generational. And I think also this has got to be seen in as part of the, of the Me Too movement. This is another development. And like the civil rights movement, that has a trajectory that... Uh, I hope we will look back and uh, and and it will look different. Uh, if I if I could, uh, as someone who's um, who's um, who's in a vocational job, 
uh, because being a being a university professor is also about um, being there to uh, to give back to society, mm. to ensure that the next generations um, have the skills um, and 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 the tools to move forward with their lives. I think. First of all, we should be careful at characterizing this as something as a universal sort of uh, type of problem because different societies have dealt or have had experience or have experienced different things at different point in times. Um, and, and in the UK, I would say, particularly university, um, bad experiences, or at least insofar as my university is concerned, over the past 10 years, uh, we've been develop- developing a very robust system uh, that allows people, whether it is uh, uh, female students, male students, who have, uh, uh, through their personal tutor, through counselling, through uh, uh, gender officers, to actually address most of these issues. Um, and it's not perfect, mm. but I think it would be unfair uh, to see what is happening right now in the United States as symbolic of a world that's being sort of sleepwalking into a problem for years and years. Mm. Because there is a degree of awareness. Uh, and also, yes, it is true that this is, this, is, this is interesting because it connects to the Me Too movement. But I think this should be a moment that brings both sides together, as in realising that both male and female individuals have to learn from each other to be with each other, with each other and together mm. move forward and, and, and build a better society. Um, I personally had experiences of students that went through problems and, and I can guarantee you that, that the university has been very serious in uh, uh, tackling them. So in a way, I'm, I'm actually very hopeful because we've right. been aware of this for, for some time. And I would say, especially in the UK, my experience would suggest that we are trying to do something about it. I have to- do agree with you there. I think the, the the trajectory is a positive one. I mean, my six-year-old son is already learning about the ideas and the concepts of consent, and not just not because he's a boy, but at school, at nursery, even they understand about whether you can be in people's personal spaces and and so on and so forth. So I think it is uh, we are moving in the right direction. Awareness is the number one mm. issue, and I agree completely that that men and women should be partners in this too. Mm. The the big problem is on a high-profile case. That this, as I said, is the lack of leadership or the leadership which is uh, presented in a, in a in a pretty despicable way. Mm. And Donald Trump's comments on this have been unsurprisingly pretty rotten. And although he has admitted, well, he might be wrong, he's willing to change his mind, <laughs> the presumption has been has been very horrible. Mm. So, mm. will it encourage more people to come forward and more people to talk about this? Yes, but it's quite clear that. The consequences are still uh, are still immense. I think this this is it, coming forward and testifying like this requires an immense amount of bravery that I mm. would not have. Very well said there. And uh, we will stay in the U.S. now, but I want to move us from Washington to New York City, where the United Nations General Assembly continues. But while the show may have gone on, the U.S. president continues to dominate conversations following his rambling 83-minute press conference yesterday. Uh, Let's play uh, again maybe just a, a small slice of that. You were talking about your administration's accomplishments at the United Nations and a lot of the leaders laughed. Well, that's laughing. fake news. And what was that experience yeah, like? It's fake news. And it was covered that way. Okay. They weren't laughing at me. They were laughing with me. We had fun. 
Well, even with uh, other world leaders chuckling at him, Trump still seems sees himself as a great deal maker, the greatest of the world, perhaps. And even while pointing fingers at the U.N., he's promising results on a number of files on a, any level. Is he being taken seriously at all in this forum? That's a very good question. And if I were just to observe what happened at the UN Security Council yesterday, um, after he talked and he explained uh, his approach to Iran, the reaction that pretty much everybody else on that should have been on his side was, uh, then the answer is, no, nah, no, nah, no, nah, nah. it doesn't look like they're taking mm. him too seriously. Um, Macron and, and, and May were very quite clear that they were drawing a line, they were distancing themselves um, from uh, from um, from uh, President Trump. Um, and I think all major leaders, in a way, some in softer ways than others, are doing so. I think what, what we're looking at, you know, for a number of months now we've said, oh, the president is mercurial, has this kind of behaviour, but his administration is working tirelessly behind him to make things work. I think yesterday what really the session has shown is that um, American diplomacy at the moment is failing because they are not bringing other people, most of all, America's closest allies with them on their projects. So either there's a problem with their projects, mm. and I would say that's possible, huh? that's something we should <laughs> consider, or um, or they're they just not doing their job well enough. But I think I think the first, the first one really is the one we should be sort of exploring a bit further. You know, the UN, Daniel, is, is known for this sort of grandstanding. We always There's always a big moment every year of, of, of these accusations. And, and perhaps we wonder if, if there is things, if there are things getting done behind the scenes, uh, as Alessio uh, mentions, that perhaps goes beyond the leaders. But, I mean, Trump has thrown out some pretty serious uh, accusations here, including uh, China meddling in the midterm elections. And uh, is he doing more harm here to what his uh, White House can or can't accomplish? Well, he's not really addressing anyone at, no. the, at the UN and mm. he's not really addressing international leaders mm. and he's not making any statements of policy. He's talking to his support base mm. who love this stuff. I mean, this is his USP. He's standing up to the standing up to other countries, um, standing up to international organisations, uh, strutting his stuff on the world stage and logic or facts or accuracy uh, have very little to do with it. Mm. I mean, listening to him now, he sounds like a parody of himself. Yeah. And I I feel uncomfortable even laughing, to be honest, because I, I, I get more and more scared uh, as time goes on. Uh, his, uh, his rhetoric over Iran is not, first of all, it's not consistent, which would mm. be comforting at least if you thought there was some ideology or pattern behind it. It's inconsistent and... Uh, I think he's, uh, as you say, he's increasingly isolated. His former allies are not really paying any attention uh, to when it comes to Iran over him. I think they realise that the stakes are, are really too high over this. At least this is one thing, one aspect where people, internet world leaders, are willing to, to stand up against mm. him. And uh, we had uh, quite an incredible press conference, as I said uh, there. He, he he took questions from this True News organization that I, we had to look up today here. I had never heard of it. Mm. But back-to-back -back questions he's taken from this. And, and again, pro perhaps just playing to his own uh, base there. But uh, this is it's kind of shameless, his behavior, is it not? I, I didn't. It, it would have been uh, in two thousand and early two thousand and seventeen yeah. when he was president for just a few weeks. Now you would expect him to behave like that. Um, and, and and frankly, I think what is happening is that you've seen like like almost um, two narratives developing. 
the one that the president is using to speak to his base, and it's a conversation that he's having really with himself mm. and with a particular part of the American population that will love him. The more he does it, the more the more he gains success. It's it's unbelievable. If you look at at at, at polling in the US, his base is just like in love. He's doing exactly the things um, they want him to do. Even on trade wars, it, it, it's just incredible when it comes to certain aspects of the relationship with China that really speaks to that. Mm. Then there is the second narrative, the one about policy, and I must say that there are elements of policy and. And, and here is, is what, for me, is really interesting because um, I'm not sure whether the uh, behavior of the American administration in relations to policy towards Iran is a template for everything else against which this administration should be judged. Mm. Because when it comes to the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific, um, which is my main area of expertise, in at the practical level, um, there is a number of steps that have been taken uh, with the exception of TPP, but that for reasons that are complicated to explain here, actually this administration has been taking steps that are much more consistent and favouring their allies in a way that the Obama administration did not. And right. um, so I wonder sometimes whether, uh, you know, the, this, this two level, these two layers of narratives means that sometimes we need to not pay too much attention to what Trump is saying, but look at the particular sort of like case and see who's on top of that folder. Mm. Is DOD, is it state? on the stuff that DOD is leading and Mattis is leading on, I think they're doing a fairly decent job. Considering the fact, though, that this is still, you know, under the, a president that could turn around and say, like, oh, I want to fire a rocket at mm. North Korea. So you're still under that kind of, like, a problem. But it seems to me that we need to more closely pay attention to this, this two-layer narrative mm. and locate the Trump effects right, in, 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 in slightly more contained spaces. And Iran brought about the worst of both things coming together, right. in a way. I wonder if two examples of that, perhaps Iran and, and dealings with China. Uh, Rouhani in New York said uh, perhaps if, for, uh, if, if the president, um, uh, Donald Trump, tempered his rhetoric that, that they could talk eventually and, and China saying, well, you know, we, we have this trade problem, but we, do need, to, we need, do need to cooperate in the South China Sea and military policy and things like that. So perhaps uh, people aren't just laughing at him, but behind the scenes there are people that want to work with him. Is that not right? Well, I, don't, I don't think they've been given much choice. I yeah. mean, the, the, my laugh is sort of a hollow laugh of fear, really. Yeah. But also, I don't, you know, the, with Donald Trump, it's just a, quite a question of contingency planning. Right. Contingency planning for what crazy move he might take, but also contingency planning for how long is he going to last? I mean, it, all options are on the table. He mm. could, uh, he could win a second term, or he could be mm. uh, in big trouble. When it comes to issues like Iran with the, the nuclear deal, I mean, it's in Iran's interest to try and keep this going as long as possible, especially because the other partners have said that they're, they're interested in, in keeping it going. And he's so uh, inconsistent. Talking about Rouhani is probably an absolutely delightful guy, right. one minute and threatening all kinds of, uh, of awful um, fates the next. So everyone is hedging their bets. And really, they can control how they're going to act, but... They can't control what he might do next. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Daniela Pallad, and Alessio Patilano. Coming up next, it's fair to say that many people in Britain are feeling confused about Brexit, but what about the rest of the world? And is it time the military relaxed its attitude towards beards? Canadians say it is. 
Welcome back to Midori House. Daniel Bates here alongside Daniela Pellet and Dr. Alessio Patulano. Britain is confused about Brexit. Just months from the deadline for the country to exit the European Union, the ruling Conservative Party is split over the terms of any potential deal. The opposition Labour Party says it will keep the option of a second referendum on the table. But few believe that leader Jeremy Corbyn is actually committed to that cause. Confusion and chaos over the issue is rife in Westminster. It's a little wonder that outside the UK, observers are baffled. Ex explaining uh, the divide to people outside the UK bubble, and, and they'll ask, uh, why not just have another vote? Isn't it that simple, Daniela? Well, it's very difficult for me to explain any of it yeah. because I don't yeah. understand it myself. It seems increasingly <laughs> likely to me that the hard, well, we're gonna, it's going to be like a hard crash, no deal, mm. um, Brexit... Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're very polarised in what we think of this. I'm obviously, uh, as, a, as a North London leftist liberal journalist, I'm obviously a massive Remainer. Uh, and it seems to me bonkers. How do you explain to the rest of the world who are either trying to be part of these kind of uh, these international mm. unions or are enjoying their benefits uh, that we're, we're willfully co uh, committing this massive act of, of self-harm? Um there's also well, there's a very confused message coming from the government as mm. well, because as they're sort of rather desperately trying to arrange alternatives and wooing people hither and thither across the world, because they hopefully will have some sort of trade deal that will save us, uh, they don't know either. It's a kind of scattergun approach. So the Brits, I think we are, well, one of our national brands would be calmness, rationality, politeness, you know, <laughs> doing things perhaps not very with great flair, but... Or, you know German efficiency, but you know we we can we can generally get stuff done. I think all that is going to pot right now. Mm. Uh, this idea of the second referendum uh, has become uh, quite a poison, hasn't it, Alessio? Mm. Yes, and 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 you know, had you asked me these questions like uh, four or five months ago, I would have said, yeah, a second referendum sounds like a good idea. At the mm. moment, I don't think I actually am entirely convinced it is a good idea, um, unless all we're looking at is, is, is a hard Brexit, no deal. But short of that, which I don't think it will come down to it, I think the 11th hour, something will magically appear mm. and everybody will come to their senses. You see, I think the reason why people outside of the UK tend not to understand Brexit uh, is due to three factors, the way I look at it. As someone who has lived um, the period just before the referendum and after the referendum across three countries for family-related and professional reasons. Um, so we're spending some... I was here and then I was spending some time in France and then some time in Italy and then back. And, and there's three things that really I'm convinced of. First of all, Brexit in the UK means something different from what it means in most of continental Europe. For the European, what they cannot understand is how is that possible that the Brits are giving up on the European project. Mm. What they fail to understand is that in Britain, the European project really never made it to shore. It was always an economic thing. And so this idea of the European project exists with our young students doing Erasmus exchanges, mm. which is the reason why statistically in the, in, the, in the UK is the educated young people under 35 that voted the most to remain. It's just, it's, it's, it's a sharp element of stats that mm. everybody can sort of look at, right? But fundamentally, what you're saying is that those who created the EU 
EU project at the beginning, never really thought about it as like, great, we're finally getting all Europeans. So that's that's problem number one. There is a, uh, there's a perception gap. For us, it's an economic matter. For the Europeans, it's like, how can they possibly abandon this beautiful thing? Secondly, there's this binary sort of thing, as in, for the Europeans, Europe is this wealthy, well-placed, sort of like, uh, we're in a good zone. So, and so, and so why would you ever leave this, where you mm. get all this trade and other bits and pieces? And I think what is happening in the UK is that, as someone who works on, on, on Asian matters, there's, there's, there's an alternative narrative is emerging that is, you know, the post-Brexit, we are re-engaging with the world. Actually, Europe was 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 a was a almost a bleep. Um, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Right. But the fact that in parts of the world the people are not interested in Brexit is because there is an alternative narrative that is about oh, by the way, this is how are we planning to re-engage with the rest of the world? The most important things happening at the FCO is the reopening of seven embassies in the South Pacific Islands, for example, a re-engagement with Indonesia. You know, again, was that? necessary to leave the EU to do these things? Mm. I don't think so, but that's what happened. So it seems to me that there are a number of stories out there um, that contribute to explain. And then as I say, there's three things, but these two points in particular, the idea of the European project and the fact that life without the EU has no point to exist in some areas just are not connecting because the UK government is trying to send a different message. Now, the third point is that there is genuine chaos inside mm. the country about what Brexit is. <laughs> but we have already talked about that. Would you take that up, Daniela? The, the, there's a definite perception problem on, on how we've always seen the European project. as I, I, think that's, I think that's very true. And yeah. I think it's something to do with being an island nation. And mm. uh, even though people really, really struggle very hard to define what's British culture is? Is it fish and chips? Or maybe it's curry? Is it cups of tea? We don't quite know. Cues. Uh, there's still a, 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 this longing to, to cling to it. So there's this kind of xenophobia that's always characterised our, uh, our national project. Um, but at the same time, we or we were, it's hard to understand because we were big actors in, in Europe. We mm. were one of the, the big three. And the perception was that we were this hopeless pawn being swept along by, you know, the continental types wanting to take over Europe, if not the world. Mm. So, yeah, perception as in with politics and economics, perception is key. Well, finally today, I want to make sure we have time for this one. It worked for Abraham Lincoln, David Letterman, and even groundskeeper Willie. But sporting a beard in the army, in many cases, in many countries, most of the time, has been a no-no. For Canadians, that is about to change. The National Defence has said that members will now be able to maintain a beard provided it's kept neat and groomed. Uh, This does ease past restrictions which allowed beards, but only on a limited basis and at the discretion of the Chief of Defence Staff. So the man with the top job, you got to get his permission. The Navy reserves its right to make uh, sailors shave well at sea. They say it's a security thing uh, and a health and well-being thing, but uh, that you can have a beard on shore, I guess. Uh, point, it's interesting to point out the current uh, defense minister, Harjit Sajjan, a Sikh, has always worn a beard, always, uh, and when he was a top military commander in the Middle East as well. Uh, Alessio, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, Since he does have a beard. Yeah, he does is. have a beard, so we have to go to you as, as the expert. Uh, uh, 
is this important at all to update this policy? Is it a sign of our times that we've got to regulate beards? I think, well, I think it's a sign of our times in the sense that if you go around developed countries, grooming is becoming, male grooming is becoming mm. a big thing. I mean, there's there's a barbershop. There used to be, you know, hairdressers everywhere. Now there's barbershops everywhere. Uh, so I suppose that's sort of filtering down the army as well. Um, operationally speaking, um, um, having a beard and sort of like that rough type of look um, served well in certain areas like for example it is well known that special forces mm. operating in parts of Afghanistan uh, you can recognize them they were military for like literally until you were talking to them but that's a different story I think I think what we're looking at armies always had regulations of a behavior and for, for morale for discipline for a number of reasons the fact that this is going down to regulating beards and the facial hair arrangement perhaps is more a sign of the time. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned morale there because that, that was pointed out here. They say that appearance enhances morale and, and exactly. perhaps they want to be exclusive. Do you buy that, uh, Danielle? I, I, I don't know. I see this as part of the global capitulation to the hipster, really. <laughs> There's no way to hide. Absolutely yes. nowhere at all. I mean, yeah. in hand-to-hand combat, you can understand that a, a beard might be a bit of a problem. Yeah. You, know, you can grab grab them while you hack at your opponent with an axe. But in the era of drone warfare, I'm sure that's not a problem. Perhaps we're just trying to be more inclusive. As a Canadian, I think it's just trying to stay neat and tidy, but being accepting to everyone. Perhaps that's part of it. Uh, uh, Alessia, what would be your grooming regulations in your uh, military force, you think? Oh, blimey. Uh, That's an interesting (laughs) question. Uh, Well... Well, no, I am actually in favour of this beard thing. I mean, yeah. I must admit, I mean, I'm all for the beards. He's biased and, there. Yeah, he's biased. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, yes. Yeah. Yes, clean shave, beard, rough and ready, you know, <laughs> designed to be faster in the wind. And I can win a fight even with a, with a beard, I'll tell you that. Okay, well, there you have it. Uh, Daniela, who, are your, who wore your favourite beard of all time, do you think? Uh, that would have to be Moses. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I was going to go with with Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. I think I think that would work. But uh, uh, there you have it. Uh, some of the best uh, grooming uh, regulations from my guest Daniela Pallad and Alessio Patalano, my very special guests here today on Midori House. That is all the time we have, unfortunately. Today's show produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Labri, and uh, our studio manager. Christy Evans. More music next, and then at 1900 hours, it's The Urbanist. We'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. That is at 2200 hours London time. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening, and goodbye.